uh, Numbers chapter 9. We're going to read verses 15 to 23. And uh, this text captures something really, really beautiful. We, we left off last week with the, the, the tabernacle being built. Amen? You remember that? We left off last week with the tabernacle finally being built at the end of Exodus. And this Thursday, I wasn't here, but I got to uh, rewatch um, the, the sermon on Facebook. And Sister Karina, our youth leader, took us back into Exodus chapter 25 and spoke about the offerings that God was requiring for the building of the tabernacle, but he wanted them to give it from a willing heart. Another theme that, you, that we should see through scripture, and we'll see again today, is that God does not force his kingdom, God does not force his will on any of us. He respects the, the, cre, the creation that he made so much that he's always, it's more of him inviting us to invite him. And even when he wants something from us, and believe me, God does want things from us and require things of us, but he wants you to do that with a willing heart. And so you can come in here and bring something to God willfully, or you can come in here and reserve it. And he'll allow you to walk out this place, but he'll invite you again the following week. And he'll search you out again and again because he won't twist he doesn't twist our arms for his will to, to come into our lives, but he invites us to invite him. And so he invites the nation from the offerings that he allowed them to come out of Egypt with to willfully bring what he required. They couldn't give whatever they wanted. He said, this is what I want, but it's up to you from a willing heart. And so the willingness of the people with their gifts is what built the tabernacle. Beautiful. And this is still true to this very day. The temple, the, the tabernacle that we have today is because people, I hope, willingly gave. And you never felt like pastor was twisting your arm or the leaders were, you know, if you don't give, don't come back. It's never been our heart at, as the dwelling place church, but for us to willfully give in order to build God's house. And so we left off in Exodus where, where the tabernacle is built and Exodus, the final chapter, ends with the glory filling the tabernacle. Filling the tabernacle in a special and unique way. So I'm going to go forward to the book of Numbers and we'll backtrack a little bit. But this captures something beautiful about that tabernacle. And I just, it's very descriptive. It might seem repetitive what we're reading, but it's, it's, it's painting a beautiful picture. So Numbers chapter 9, verses 15 to 23, uh, the verses will be up above me if you do not have them. If you're following along in your Bible or in a Bible app, today all the passages will be uh, read from New International Version. It reads the name of the Father, the Son, and Holy Spirit, and church says, it says, on the day the tabernacle, on, on the day the tabernacle, the tent of the covenant law was set up, the cloud covered it, Okay. So on the day the tabernacle, the tent of the covenant of law was set up, the cloud covered it. And again, we've learned this is not a storm cloud. This is not a natural cloud. This is a cloud of God's beautiful presence in glory. This is something of heaven. Amen? 
If it's not, of a, if it's not an earthly cloud, then what is it? It's, it's a heavenly cloud that is what? Coming down. It's resting on the tabernacle, and the tabernacle is where? Not floating. It's touching the ground. So the cloud, the heavenly, is again touching the earthly. And when the heaven touches the earthly, the natural, that is when it becomes something very profound. Look, from evening till morning, the cloud uh, above the tabernacle looked like fire. That is how it continued to be. The cloud covered it, and at night it looked like fire. Again, if you didn't catch it the first time. <laughs> and it's not because I read it twice. It's because the author wrote it twice. Whenever the cloud lifted from above the tent, the Israelites, what, set out. Wherever the cloud settled, the Israelites encamped. And so what we should see now is this picture of the cloud moving from the tabernacle, settling somewhere else, and the whole nation picking up the tabernacle, picking up their belongings, and following what? The cloud. Now, you guys, if you've been coming to the Dwelling Place Church for several years now, more recently, we have talked about following the cloud, following the cloud. This is where we get such language from. It's a people who are in pursuit of the very presence of God, and that is what we aspire to be as the Dwelling Place Church, that we are not leading ourselves that we're not deciding when we're picking up, when we're going, that we're not picking our places, that we're not picking our direction, but we're allowing God to lead us by his presence. And if God moves forward, we move forward. If God settles, then we settle. This is what we're aspiring to be. Verse 18, at the Lord's command, the Israelites set out, and at his command, they encamped. As long as the cloud stayed over the tabernacle, they remained in the camp. When the cloud remained over the tabernacle, look at this. How long? A long time the Israelites obeyed the Lord's order and they did not set out. It's powerful. In other words, we'll stay here, Lord, as long as you want us to stay here. Regardless about how we may feel here. Regardless if I want to change the scenery, God, if this is where you want us, then this is where we're going to remain. It's a challenge for us, if we're honest. Verse 20. Sometimes the cloud was over the tabernacle, look, only a few days. At the Lord's command, they would encamp, and then at his command, they would set out. Sometimes the cloud stayed only from, look at this, from evening till the morning. And when it lifted in the morning, what did they do? They set out. Whether by day or by night, whenever the cloud lifted, they set out. We're talking about a million people who are in the wilderness with belongings, with children, with their life in bags. And this tabernacle, this structure that is where God's dwelling in their midst, if it stayed only for half a day and got up, then they, they, they picked up everything and they were willing to move their lives all in order to follow the presence of God. And if it stayed there a long time, then it didn't matter if they were tired of the place, then they remained. My goodness. What an example for our lives to be. But what an example that reveals, reveals our impatience, 
and our lack of faith and trust with God. For the most part, right? Where am I? 22, I think. 22. Whether the cloud stayed over the tabernacle for two days or a month or a year, the Israelites remain, would remain in the camp and not set out. But when it lifted, they set out. Verse 23. At the Lord's command, they encamped. And at the Lord's command, they set out. They obeyed the Lord's order in accordance with his command through Moses. Amen. We'll stop there. What a passage. What a passage. Um, I want to preach to you, and you guys could be seated. Thank you for standing. You didn't stand for me. Standing in honor of God's word. Um, I want to preach to you from the subject, a temple or a tabernacle is needed. It is needed. And I, again, that might uh, be uh, in confrontation with how many people feel right now in today's world. Um, there, there's, there's more, probably more than ever before, there are more Christians than ever before saying we don't need a church and we don't need a building and we don't need a temple. It's, it's, it's not that. We're the temple. Yes, yes, we are. Amen. We're going to get there in about uh, next week or two. And so we'll, we'll, we'll bring it all in context together, but today I want to I tell you if, um, if you've been hearing things that the temple's not needed, that the church is not needed, that the structure, that the place is not needed, I want to I confront uh, those voices in your head. I want to confront if that's someone you know saying that they don't believe in the church no more, or whether that's the devil himself telling you that you do not need to be here. I want to tell you that that is a lie. And the temple, the church, God's house is so needed. And so what we read in Numbers is this beautiful picture where the tabernacle is the structure that God and the tabernacle is a design, not that Moses made up, not that any of the people came together and said, you know what would be awesome being that we're out here in the wilderness and being that we love God so much? We should, we should make a house for God. It did not come from the heart of the people to make a temple, to make a structure for God to dwell in their midst. No. The instruction for the temple and the house of God to be built came directly from God. On Thursday, in the chapter that uh, Karina focused on, and we read from this passage uh, last week too, in Exodus chapter 25, it is God who's giving the instructions on the tabernacle, and it is on this mountain where God reveals to Moses the entire design from top to bottom. Moses has no part and say, you know, God, I think blue would look nice. He doesn't say, I think scarlet would be nice. I think acacia wood would work. I think white linen sheets would go well. I think a laver over here, being that the priests are going to slaughter these. No, it did not come from the heart. It did not come from the mind, but it literally came from heaven. God invites Moses up into this cosmic mountain where he has descended on the mountain. Heaven is touching earth. It is thundering. And then God invites Moses. He says, I'm going to give you the pattern, and they are to make it exactly according to the pattern that I show you. And so Moses gets a vision. He gets to see the pattern of the tabernacle. He gets to know the materials that are needed, all from the willingness of the offering. God wants to build it. And what God says to Moses in Exodus chapter 25, verse 8, he tells them and he invites them for them to make a sanctuary, this tabernacle, look at this, so that he may dwell among them, that he may dwell among them. 
And this is a profound moment in the in story because up until that point, where is God? He is in this mountain. Where is Moses? Moses is going up into the mountain. Where are the people? They are down in the valley. And so the people at the same time are fearful of God. They see his power. And that is important. That is something that they do need to understand. As they're coming out of Egypt and enslaved generation after generation for 400 years, this is their introduction to God. And God wants them to know that he is powerful, that he is great, and that he delivered them with a mighty hand. And in Exodus chapter 19, he says, I delivered you out with a mighty hand, and I carried you out on eagle's wings, and I brought you to myself. And so he's not just the God that kicked down the front door of Egypt and, you know, just so that they can get out and go off to wherever they want to, but he's a God that kicked down the front door of Egypt and so that they can come right into his bosom. And so he's brought them out because he loves them. He introduces himself to them through Moses as the God of their father, Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. He is the loving God. He's the God of promise. He's the one that has spoken to them from generation to generation that he's going to bless them, give them a great name, and he has a special place for them. And that place becomes the land of Canaan. He allowed Abraham to walk through it, search its, its, its width and its breadth and its depth. And he, told, he allowed Abraham, he told him, go ahead, go on a little, go, go on a little tour. And I'm telling you that this, plant, this land I'm going to give to your generation. And so God is going to deliver them, deliver them to himself, but bring them into a land. And he wants to be their God. And so the beautiful thing about Exodus chapter 25, and when he gives them the instruction for the tabernacle, and he tells them to build this house, it's not just build a house for God and everyone stay back and just, you know, take pictures at the beautiful temple where God lives. No, he wants them to build a house, build a temple for him, not on the mountain, but right in their very midst. This is a beautiful picture about this God. This is a beautiful picture because this is the same God that you and I come to faith in. God doesn't want to just exist in the heavenlies and this galaxy far, far away. And, you know, we look at it like, yeah, God's cool. No, God desires to be right in our midst. He wanted to dwell among them. And so this is a bit scary for the nation because they saw him thundering and the mountains literally on fire. And God is speaking to Moses from the mountain. And at times they're like, Moses, you talk to God. We're okay with you talking to God. We'll be right over here. And Moses has to tell him, hey, man, God just blew up this mountain in this way because he wants you to fear him, have some respect. But he does want to be in your midst. He doesn't want to be a God that has a relationship with the people through Moses. He didn't want Moses to just be the mediator between them and God speak to Moses, Moses talk to them, then they speak to Moses. That's not the kind of relationship that this God wanted. He wanted to be in a loving, faithful, covenant relationship with them. He wanted them to know his heart, know his wisdom. He wanted to bless them. He wanted to use them to be a blessing to the rest of the world. And the only way that he can do that is if they get close so that God can transform them as he was transforming Moses, as Moses was entering his presence. And this is a picture that we need to understand. He doesn't want to stay on the cosmic mountain. He wants to come down and touch earth so that they can, what, come onto him and be transformed by him, bring them into this place, and then they can display his beauty, his wisdom, his light to the rest of the nations. This was God's plan. And so in this series, what we're trying to also do is say that the temple is where heaven and earth meet. 
And so we're also confronting this thought that has developed throughout the years that heaven is this place so high and that's God's space and we're on earth so far below and this is human space and those two places are, are, are separated by I don't know how many galaxies. But what we see in scripture and what we have, how we began this series is this, that through Jesus, Jesus and his, and his most famous sermon, his longest sermon recorded in our Bibles, and it's, it's known as Sermon on the Mount, we capture it in the Gospel of Matthew, where Jesus invites and he's teaching the people how to pray. And there's this very special prayer known to us today that we have called the Lord's Prayer. And in Matthew chapter 6, verses 9 and 10, Jesus is going to teach his disciples and teach the followers who are on this mountain with him how to pray. And this is what Jesus says in Matthew chapter 6, verses 9 and 10. This then is how you should pray. And look at what Jesus says. Our Father, where in heaven, hallowed be your name. And look at this. Your kingdom come. Your will be done where? On earth as it is in heaven. And now we see that Jesus shows through this prayer, teaching them how to pray, a beautiful picture, again, that God is not forcing his will and his kingdom upon creation, but rather God is respecting them and he's inviting them through their prayer to invite his kingdom down on earth. Through prayer, submission, and their actions, we are able to permit heaven to fill earth. Beautiful. By your prayer, it begins by your prayer. It begins by your understanding. If you think that heaven is over there and the earth is over here, then that's how you're going to pray. So Jesus says, when you pray, we're going to pray that his kingdom comes. Which kingdom? His heavenly kingdom. And for what? For his will to be done on earth as it is being done in heaven. And so what the prayer is doing is it's taking heaven that we see so far over here and it's taking earth that seems so separated and it's bringing them together and this is revealed in Jesus teaching us on how to pray. This is how you and I should pray. Before we get into our will, before we get into our desires, we should be praying, God, what is your will? What is your desires? What is in the heavens? What is in your kingdom? What is in your plan? And this, God, I, I, I tell you, I invite you for your will to be done before mine. Not my will be done, but yours be done. And that's how Jesus closes his ministry before going to the cross in the Garden of Gethsemane. He prays that same prayer, not my will be done, but your will be done. And so going back to Exodus, we ended last week, Exodus chapter 40, the final chapter. The tabernacle is made and the presence of God fills it, fills it, I mean, like, to its capacity. It's like busting at the seams. I can imagine the, the tent curtains, like, right? And, and that cloud, if it's there, it's like, I mean, the thing is like flame on. To the point that Exodus 40 ends that not even Moses, Moses who was able to walk up into the mountain, there was so much more presence of God down in that tabernacle that not even Moses could go in at the moment. It's like, they had to wait for that thing to tone on down. It's like, Exodus 40 ends with the, the weight of God's presence resting, sitting. God literally made his habitation in that little tabernacle. And again, we're, so, so where's God? 
Surely he's in the heavens, right? Surely he's divine, but he decides to make his habitation where? On earth. On earth. He desires to be where? On earth so he could be in their midst. And this is a picture of God's kingdom coming to earth so that his will could be done on earth as it is in heaven. You see this in the tabernacle. But then we also see that his glory, I mean, God is so powerful, but he's also pure. Powerful and pure to the point that someone can't just walk in there. Someone can't just freely walk into this presence. And so what we start to learn through the books of the Bible that God is, what we, what we learn, he's holy, which means he's both powerful, but he's also pure. And so darkness, wickedness cannot just walk into his presence because his presence will scorch you to death. <laughs> it's almost like, uh, here, here would be a, a, an analogy, but God is so much even more. It's like the sun. The sun is, 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 is good. The sun is good for us, and the sun is, is powerful. But the close, you get too close to the sun, and th- that thing will kill you. And so God created our earth and the sun and put it positioned in such a place that we receive the benefits without it scorching us. And so imagine drawing near to the presence of God, the one who's a, who created the sun. And so God understands this, knows this about him, and so what God is going to do in his grace, he's going to allow them, despite their human corruption, to approach him without being scorched. Because he's not just a powerful God, he's also a loving God, and he wants to show that he is a father and they are his children. If you could just put up the picture of the tabernacle so we could just see this image that was out in the wilderness, and and. And this cloud would lift from the tabernacle and it just represented the glory of God with them. It was how they knew, yes, God's, God's home. He's still here. Is God still here? <laughs> this ain't no regular tent. It might not be that uh, impressive, but God is here and that was what was important. And that needs to be important to us. It's really not the materials. It's really not, you know, how, how much gold there is. What's really important is that is God resting there? And so God was resting in this tabernacle. And as we read, when the cloud lifted and started to move, they'd have to pick up the tent and take down the pegs and get the stuff and pack it up and then and follow it. And so what was inside that tent, there was a, a, a deeper room in there. That There was a partition in that room with the veil. And in the, the, the deepest part of that room was the Ark of the Covenant. And we looked at this last week, if you could put it up. It was this amazing piece that, again, God, God gave the instruction and the design for. And it was wood overlaid with gold, and there were two cherubim on it, and that was a cover, that top portion that could be opened up and inside. Uh, God instructed Moses to put the law that he had given, the instructions, the words of wisdom were, were placed in there. And, and, and God tells Moses, this is where I will meet them. I will meet them there where those two cherubims are, are, are there like guard dogs over this thing. Um, it was called the mercy seat. That top cover was called the mercy seat. Some, we, some of us know it as the atonement cover. 
but it's there that they would bring this annual sacrifice of blood where the high priest would walk in and he would pour it there on top of the mercy seat and it was there for God to receive the sacrifice or not. And if the God received it, then that meant that his presence would remain with them for, for that year. And then they knew that they were in grace with God. And so there was, yes, this whole system, and it's difficult, and it's tough reading for us. And so, right, the book of Exodus ends, and the tabernacle is there. They have the ark that represents where the presence of God is going to meet them. And then we get into the book of Leviticus. And Leviticus is a, I understand, it's a difficult book to read, um, because it's a book of instruction, right? You start reading it, you start to hear all these instructions, but it's instructing them now, and, 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 and I hope this makes sense, and you're like, ah, oh, I don't like reading this, there's not enough cool stories in here, can I just move on to numbers or something like that, a little bit more action there, but, but think of this, think of this, Exodus ends with God, what, resting into the tabernacle, the presence of God is on earth, and, and you can't just walk in there. You can't just stroll through the front door. Not even Moses can enter at the moment that the God's presence is there. So God is there. He's there. And he told Moses, build me a tabernacle so I could dwell in their midst. But what's the point if God is there and the people can't enter? What's the point if his presence is just so strong because he's too holy and they're too impure? Then how can they even have genuine authentic relationship if they cannot draw near. So this, I hope this helps. The book of Exodus is the instruction on how the people are to purify themselves in order for them to draw near. And it might be a little bit hard reading for us. It makes, uh, okay, this isn't, you know, this doesn't, yeah, you guys get the point, right? But it's how they are to draw near to God, despite their corruption. It's to teach them that Yahweh is both powerful and pure, that he is holy, yet he desires to be in their midst, be a loving God, but his holiness is going to require their purity. And so when you start reading the, the book of Leviticus, it's, you can see it's broken up into like seven parts. There's like three part here, then there's like a middle anchor, and then there's the final three parts. And in Leviticus, the first parts that we see as we see God give them instructions for certain rituals and animal sacrifices, and that makes up the first portion. From there, we see him give instruction for the priests who are going to be ministering in the tabernacle and how, for the, how are they to consecrate themselves as they're performing the duties in the tabernacle. And then after that, it goes into uh, purity uh, regulations that they must keep, and those get really, really weird, and we're like, ah, I don't even understand that, but it's really to make a distinction between them and the rest of the nations, and then you get to the middle of Leviticus, and then at the middle, the climax of the book of Leviticus speaks on the day of atonement, that day when the high priest goes to that mercy seat and pours the blood, and they enter into the grace with God, and there's instruction for them how to do that, and so you have the the rituals, you have the priesthood, and then you have the purity laws, and then you have the day of atonement, and then you get more priesthood, then you get uh, more rituals, um, you get purity laws, priesthood, and then rituals all over again. And then the book of Leviticus ends. And if you survived, amen. But it's important because it shows the entire nation, not just the priests, but the people, how now to be able to enter and draw near to God, who is now 
in their midst. Does that make sense? God's there, but you've got to be able to draw near. And so this is how they go from being a corrupt and unholy people to purifying themselves so they can get access and draw near to God. And after we finish the book of Leviticus, we go into the next book in the Bible, and that's the book of Numbers. What a name. It makes me cringe. Uh, I don't like, I mean, if you like accounting and things like that, um, you, you love it. You're like, yes, it starts out with a census. Do you want to read that? Um, but it's almost, it's, it's a little bit of a shame that it's called Numbers in our English Bibles. The actual name of the book in, in its Hebrew language is not called Numbers. It's In the Wilderness. Oh, now that sounds like something I want to watch, right? In the Wilderness. Um, and so the book of Numbers is really a journey of them now traveling through the wilderness to that promised land. Exodus, the tabernacle is there, but they can't touch it. Leviticus allows them to draw near. Now they can touch it and pick it up, and now they know what to do with it. Well, what's the purpose? It's not for them to just have God's house out in the wilderness. The purpose is for God to be in their midst, but to bring them what? Into a promised land. And so the book of Numbers tells us on their journeys through the wilderness. And the reason why we have a number count and we have a census in the beginning is because it's counting all the people, all the generation that came out of Egypt, and now they are headed towards the promised land. Numbers, the book of Numbers, it's actually really good and interesting. There's a lot of different scenes in there. It could probably be a, a, a show on Netflix, Numbers on Netflix, or Pure Flix, I guess, right? <laughs> <laughs> and so what happens is they were actually encamped by that mountain for a year, Mount Sinai, Mount Horeb. They were there for a year getting instruction from God, getting the tabernacle, learning uh, how to be able to approach God. And after they got all of that, then God's going to send them out through Moses and he's going to head them towards the promised land. And so Numbers is the road trip. It's the journey from that mountain towards the promised land with the tabernacle. This is why when we read in Numbers chapter 9, it's talking to us about how they moved with the tabernacle as they set out on their journey. And Numbers 9 is really beautiful because it shows what? That the tabernacle is the center of all that they do. They're not going out on their own. They're not leading the way. Moses is not making up how we go to the promised land. They're really trusting God. They're really trusting his presence to lead them, and if the presence of God stays there for just a day, then that's what they're going to do. They're going to move their whole family. They're going to be there a day, but if God sets out in the morning, then they're going to pick up, and they're going to go, and Exodus 9 is probably like the most beautiful part of the book of Numbers. I really like it. It's cool. It's showing this trust. It's showing this faith. It's showing that they're letting God be the center of all they do. And what was beautiful, when, God, when they finally set out after the census is done and they're going to head out towards the promised land, the, all the tribes, they, they get into a special order that God tells them to go in. And then the, 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 the Levites, who are the priests, the workers of the tabernacle, uh, this is how God leads them out. They take the Ark of the Covenant, they pack up the, 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 the tabernacle, fold it, put it in its boxes. Only certain, the, the priests actually have, the tribe of Levi has three different kind of groups within the tribe of Levi, and they all have special responsibilities for the tabernacle. And so those three groups, you know, pack up the tabernacle, and then the Levites and a special group from them are the ones that are able to carry the ark, and they start marching forward in the wilderness with the ark ahead of them. So they're literally marching with the symbol, the ark of God, God's presence with them through the wilderness. And the journey starts out nice. 
But when you read the rest of the book of Numbers, things go south for them. You see their lack of trust in God. You see their rebellion. Eventually, in the, it's in the book of Numbers that Moses brings them close to the outskirts of the promised land. And God picks men to go out and spy the land. And it's where these men go and they spy the land for 40 days. When they come back, they sent out 12 spies. Ten of the spies are like, yeah, the land's nice, but there are giants in the land and we can't do it. Only two spies say, yes, we Yes, the land, this is a good land. We can do this. That's Joshua and Caleb. But the rest of the majority outweigh the two who believe that they can. And so they, dis, they, they don't believe after seeing, after having the presence of God in their midst, they're afraid of some dudes who are kind of tall in the land of Canaan. It's like, come on, guys. A cloud is leading you. Like the God that was just, had that mountain ablaze, is with you, and he's in your midst, and he's telling you that he's going to give you that land, and you're afraid. And so their fear, their unbelief, they do not go into the promised land. And Moses is upset. God is frustrated with them. And as a result, God does not allow that whole entire generation to enter into the promised land. Why? Because they did not want to go into the promised land. And so they forfeit the blessing. And so God reserves the blessing of the promised land for their children. And, and this is really just supposed to be like a two-week journey from, from, from Mount Sinai into the promised land. Just two weeks, you should be there. God's with you. And it turns into a 40-year journey in the wilderness until that whole generation dies, and then it's their children who are left to enter into it. So the book of Numbers ends, and what do we got next? Book of Deuteronomy. If you made it that far, go you. I'm proud of you. (laughs) It's the final book of the Torah. It's the fifth book of the Torah. And in the book of Deuteronomy, we see Moses. He brings them. They're back. They're back in front of the the, the promised land. They they, They can see it. And so now, who is Moses with? He's with the children now. It's the children. They're just older now. Their parents died out in the wilderness in those 40 years because of disbelief and fear. And so now Moses God has their children, and now he has them in front of the promised land. And so now what he's going to do, he's going to recount the law, he's going to give them the instruction that they had received, that their parents had received, and now he's going to tell them, you cannot be like your parents, who for their unbelief and their rebellion did not enter into the promised land. And so when you read the book of Deuteronomy, you start to see the law happen again. You're like, I thought I read this already in Exodus somewhere. You probably did. It's just the words of Moses again, but going to a different generation so that they can enter the land that God promised that he would give. So that's where we get into the book of Deuteronomy. When Moses does this, he gets them there, and he says, all right, guys, if you obey God, if you love the Lord God with all your heart, mind, soul, and spirit, you know, and you obey him and keep his instruction, then you will have these blessings when you enter the land. And there's chapters that are devoted to, 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 to Moses saying, you get this blessing, if you obey these blessings. But then Moses, is, in his wisdom, he tells them, but if you disobey, then you, these are the curses that will come upon you. And so Deuteronomy ends with Moses getting old, and also because of Moses' own frustrations, 
He's not going to be allowed to enter into that promised land. And so God is going to prepare the next person to lead the nation. And in the book of Deuteronomy, we see God uh, uh, appoint uh, uh, Joshua. And so Joshua is going to be the one in the book of Joshua that's going to take them into the promised land. And so Moses is not going to be able to enter. What he does is he's going to pronounce blessings on them. He's getting old. He knows that he's going to die. God tells him, you can't go in. Moses is literally going to go up into a mountain. But before he goes up into the mountain, he gives them the law. They take that law. They put it into the Ark of the Covenant. Moses pronounces blessings on them, but tells them, I know when you get in the land, you're not going to be faithful. But he still blesses them and encourages them to obey God. And so Moses goes up into the mountain, and we hear that Moses dies. And that's how Deuteronomy ends. And then the Torah is closed. And then we get to the book of what? Joshua. Joshua is now the new leader, and God is encouraging Joshua, and he tells Joshua, as I was with Moses in might and in power, I'm also going to be with you, and, 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 and I'm going to do signs and wonders as I was with Moses. I will do that. And so Moses uh, carried them through the Red Sea, and so God is going to do this, show his power with Joshua as he was with Moses, and it's Joshua that's going to bring them through the Jordan River. And so the priests have that ark. Here they come with the presence of God. It's leading the way. And this is a beautiful picture. They're carrying the ark. The Levites, they go into the water. They go in first. And then God stops the Jordan River. He cuts it off. You know, the river flows. One, the water goes this way. God puts his hand this way. And then it just cuts off. And then they're able to walk. And God proves himself to be with Joshua and this new generation as he was with Moses and their parents. And this is beautiful because look at this. You have a different leader, you have a different generation, but you have the same God and you have the same promises. This is showing us what? The faithfulness of God to his promises over his people. Despite who's running the show, despite the generation. This, this is just a beautiful picture of God's love and his commitment. Because remember this, in Exodus chapter 19, he made a covenant with them that he would be their God and he would be faithful to them. And this is what God is doing, despite them being unfaithful. And so when you read the book of Joshua, what do we have in the book of Joshua? We have them going into the land and then they have to take down Jericho and they got the ark and they're going to shout and the walls are going to come crumbling down. That's wild. But how is that possible? Because the God of the heavens is with them. And so when they get into the promised land, this is the land of Canaan. It's not empty. It's occupied by Canaanites. And these people, when you read in scripture, they, they, they worship, they do not worship Yahweh clearly. They worship Baal, Astaroth. They're into children's sacrifices. They're immoral. They're corrupt. And one of the biggest instructions that God gives to them is this. When you get in the land, you have to take them out. You have to take them out because if you live with them, you're going to be uh, influenced by their culture, by their worship system, worship system, and then you're going to turn your heart away from me. And so when you read the book of Joshua, when they go in, they kick down the front door of Jericho as Moses kicked down the front door of Egypt, and it's going great. But then after that, we start to see that, well, they start winning some battles, and this is good. Um, they're, they're, they're starting to make progress. Like they're going, they're going in like literally like an army. And they're taking over the land. And so uh, as you get to the closing of, of, of the book of Joshua, Joshua's going to get old too, just like Moses got old. And he's going to reaffirm them to enter into the covenant with God. He's going to tell them, hey, okay, now we're here in the land. This is great. But you got you know, you to remain faithful to the covenant with God. 
We get into some difficult reading in the book of Joshua because we start hearing about now, right, you have the 12 tribes, and then they're going to give the tribes their land. And this is where it's like, oh, this is boring. I don't care where Benjamin went. I don't care where Issachar went. I don't care where Reuben went. Like, and, it, it, and it's hard reading. But again, this hard reading is the faithfulness of God's promise. And I don't like to read it, and it's boring to me, but God told Abraham that he would give them the land to possess it. And in that hard reading that me and you don't like is where God's promise is coming true. Literally, the land is getting divided for these people. And so you have the tribe of Levites, but they don't get their own land. God tells them, I am your inheritance. <laughs> like, you don't need your own space. I am your inheritance. But he allows them to live in towns of the other tribe's land, and you see that. And so you get there, and it's like, okay, where's the tabernacle? Where's the tabernacle? Where's the cloud? Where's the presence of God? It was everything to them in Numbers chapter 9. Do you remember this? And so now they get in the land, and when we read uh, Joshua chapter 18, verse 1, it says this. Some of the tribes already had their land told to them. But in Joshua 18, verse 1, it says this. The whole assembly of Israelites gathered at, look, Shiloh, and set up the tent of meeting there. The country was brought under their control. I was looking for this. I was, like, hunting this thing down. I'm like, I know they get into the promised land. Where's the tabernacle? What did they do? Did they leave it in boxes and forget about it? And so I hunted this down. I'm like, there, it's at Shiloh. And what's so interesting, how many people remember back in Genesis where Jacob was on the run? And as he's on the run, he gets to this place called Luz, Luz. And there he has a dream. He has this vision. And like the heavens open up and he sees this ladder, this, 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 this staircase and he sees God at the top of it, and angels are going up and down. And then when he comes out of this dream after God reaffirms the promise of Abraham to, and Isaac to him, he wakes up and he's like, he couldn't believe it. He's like, God, this is God's house. This is the gate. This is the door of heaven. He's like, and I didn't even realize it. And then so he sets up a monument with this stone, and he says, this none other is the house of God. This is the gate of heaven. You guys remember that. Well, Shiloh is just a couple of miles north, and so the tabernacle is placed a few miles north of what Jacob thought was the gate of heaven. I thought that was beautiful. I had to look and figure out where Shiloh was at. And so the tabernacle is placed not far off from where Jacob saw the heavens touch earth. And so we know that the tabernacle is there. And so if the tabernacle's there, then we know that the priests have to be there. And we know if the priests are there, then we know that they're supposed to be performing service. And if they're performing service, then what are they supposed to be doing? The people are supposed to be able to draw near and bring their sacrifices. And so even though they're in the land of promise, the tabernacle is established. Why? Because that is where the presence of God is. And this is crucial. It's important to know that when we get into the place of promise and blessing, don't throw the tabernacle out. Because this is, tends to be our nature. We want a, God, you promised this. God, you said this about me. And then when we get to that place of promise, we forget about his presence that brought us there. 
And so regardless that they were in the land and everyone gets their own city now and they're not as... There still was a tabernacle that was erected. And yes, they, they have to do life. They have their own places and their neighborhoods and their families. But they have to remember to go and draw near to the tabernacle. And so we get this in the book of Joshua. And when we finish the book of Joshua, Joshua dies. And what happens when you get to the book of Judges? I think Judges is the most tragic book in this storyline. The book of Judges shows us this. It tells us that, yes, they possessed the land, but there were still occupants, other Canaanites still there that they had yet to conquer and to clean out. But the Bible tells us this, that when they go to war with them, rather than cleaning them out and pushing them out, they allow them to stay in the land. Now, this goes against the very instruction of God. When you go in, you have to take out the Canaanites, you have to drive them out. Why? Because if not, you are going to be influenced by their culture. And so what happens to them, they go to war with them, they realize that they're too much for them, and rather than just driving them out or wiping them out, they allow them to be used as slave labor. This was not an instruction from God. And so they start doing this with the rest of the Canaanites that are in there. They start allowing them to live and just use them as forced labor. So what do you think happens? Well, now that they're there, guess what starts to influence them? Their culture, their ways, and ultimately, they take on their worship. And so now they're worshiping at their shrines. They're worshiping at their altars of Baal, at their Asheroth poles. And so in Judges, you see the people get into the land, and rather than going to the tabernacle, they're going to the temples and other worship sites of the Canaanites. And so here you are, people sitting in a blessing, failing to visit the temple. And so what's going to happen to them? They disobey God. They're no longer worshiping him. They start becoming corrupt. And so in the book of Judges, what, a God what, is, what does God have to do? Joshua's dead. Joshua dies. Moses has been gone for a whole generation there. Those were men, Joshua, Moses, or people that, that made sure they went to the tabernacle. But now those men are gone, and now the whole nation is just off worshiping in the land, all these other strange gods. They're corrupt. Their hearts are going further and further away from God. And so what God has to do, he has to just start raising up judges. As a consequence to them disobeying God, God then allows the, their enemies to start winning battles over them. So this God, God's plan is to raise up a judge who will help alleviate them from the hand of their enemy so that it could draw them near back to God. And usually what will happen, this is the pattern of the book of Judges. The judge comes, brings uh, uh, deliverance from their enemies. This is supposed to draw them near to God, but then the people don't. That judge eventually dies as a human person. They die, and when that judge dies, they go right back off into worshiping other gods, and this becomes the pattern. And we get all these different judges that God rises up, and by the end of judges, it is a catastrophe. They get into civil war with one another. They do not worship God. There's little talk. The conversation of the tabernacle that in Numbers 9 was everything to them fades into the backdrop of their lives. They start li living wild. And by the end of Judges, you cannot tell the Israelites from the Canaanites. And these were people who were supposed to get into a land, 
Seek God at his tabernacle and be transformed in their image so that they could be a light to the rest of the world. But the total opposite takes place in their life. The total opposite. All while God was being faithful to them. So the question to ask here is, what happened to that tabernacle? They let it fade to the backdrop of their lives. What happened to the temple? What happened to the sacrifices? What happened to them searching God? They faded to the backdrop of their lives. What happened to that cloud? Surely they didn't see it anymore. And so what I believe this shows is that Scripture is very compelling that when we as creation don't make our way to the tabernacle and the temple where the presence of God is, we eventually lose who we are in God. As much as we want to deny this truth, as much as we want to say, no, I don't need to be at the temple to be fine, I haven't seen too many people who have disconnected themselves from visiting the temple and in the long run be okay. And this is why it's so important that, that we understand that being here is important. Being here is important, like, that it becomes a priority. It's, it's where we are transformed. We talk about coming to church and being in his presence, and it's where we come and we sing and we worship, and our hopes that are in worship, we're being transformed, and we say this all the time, you know, when you worship, things, things change, and it's part of it. It's part of a change, but it's also learning God's word that truly transforms you. You got, you got to know that, that it's, it's understanding God's word that's going to transform you. And so this is why at the Dwelling Place Church, worship is a priority, but so is the word of God. I know what it is to sing and nothing changes. I know what it is to like a, a beat and, and, and I think I'm worshiping. I know I just like the song and I, and I, I sang the song but I wasn't really transformed. And this is why it's so important that our churches, that we're sharing the word of God and not our own ideas. Because what if we're just singing songs and then the people who are getting up here speaking are just sharing their own ideas? What change can even happen? Then, then we're, just, we're just a group of people who come together on a Sunday in religious activity, but nothing's happening. And so the thing is, we have to get to the temple, and we have to make sure that his presence is the priority. And when we talk about being in the presence of God, it's not just singing, it's really searching God also at his word to be challenged and to be transformed. For those people who say, I'm the worship type, not the word type, I'm, I'm the worship type, I'm not the word type. You know, I can't do the word too long. Pastor, you preach too long. I can't, can't do the word, you know. I, I tune out after worship. I'm gonna, I just want to invite you to try harder. 
Like, try harder. Try harder. And don't get lost out in that beautiful lobby over there. Do not turn that coffee into a shrine of Baal in your life and get lost out there. Like, we have plenty of time after service. You guys never go home either. I have to be like, leave, please, leave eventually. <laughs> it's beautiful. Like, so no, we have time. That's one of the beautiful things that we love about our church and being in this temple is that we can worship, we could get into the Word, and then we can be in communion together. But everything has its time. Everything has its time. But it is about being at the right place at the right time as well. And so these people were in the land of blessing and neglected the tabernacle. And you, you then saw that reality come true in their life. And so again, I just want to invite you to keep on, keep on pushing so, so what happens? Well, we get a little further along in our Bible. Don't worry. Bible study is coming to an end shortly. We're going to start to wrap up now. When you get to the first Samuel, this is where the reading gets a little bit easier. So just survive those hard parts. I hope you have a general scope of what's happening so that when you get here, you know what's taking place. When you get to first Samuel, uh, believe it or not, you, you read... And you realize that the tabernacle is still in Shiloh. That's the mercy of God to keep that thing up. Because you have generation after generation, all these judges, and the Israelites are like the Canaanites in the land. So it's the mercy of God that the tabernacle is still in Shiloh. But can you imagine the condition? of that tabernacle. Can you imagine the condition of the leaders? In 1 Samuel, we're introduced to the high priest of the temple. His name is Eli. And I'm just going to tell it like it is. He's lazy. He's just there holding the position. And how you know this is because the text tells us he's the high priest and he has his two sons who are also priests, so these are the people who what? Who do the work and service of the temple. High priests and his sons. And the Bible tells us this, that they're scoundrels. That when, believe it or not, there are still, while the whole nation is corrupt, right? And there were still a few people who were honoring the instruction and would go yearly to bring their sacrifice Thank God for those few people. This is why I thank God for you. I really thank God for you because in the grand opening, everybody and their mother is here. And I love it. It's good for pictures. For pictures' sake, it's good. But throughout the years, I've learned to appreciate the small crowds. I have. And rather than looking at the chairs and saying they're half empty, I have to see that there's a heart of people that are full that are pushing to be in the tabernacle. And so 1 Samuel reveals that there's a couple of families still going. There's a man named Elkanah, his wife Hannah, who while the whole 
tabernacle system and the worship system pretty much doesn't even exist in the land, there are still faithful people who are, look at this, looking for the tabernacle, looking for the temple. This is why you got to push to look for the temple. And you got to tell yourself, this place is needed. I need to be here. It doesn't matter if other people stop coming. Listen, listen to the instruction, listen to the wisdom of God and position yourself. And this man named Elkanah with his wife Hannah, he would go every year being obedient to God. Not to go see Eli, he was lazy. You know what his boys would do when, when, when people would come with their sacrifices? These boys were stealing from their sacrifices. And it gets worse. The women that were coming to the temple, they were being sexual with them defiling the house of God. And all Eli would do is be like, guys, stop that. But he was okay to show up to the tabernacle like that. He was okay with his sons to do that. They didn't call the people into repentance. No. He just held his position there. And that's a danger when we have churches like that. You know when that happens? When you think this is when we think that this is our house and not God's. And so Elkanah is coming with his wife Hannah and they're coming to the tabernacle. And the story is that she's barren and she can't have children and she, she gets to the temple and she's crying. She's like, God, would you remember me? Remember me. Would you remember me? Remember my womb. And so God hears her and God blesses Hannah but Hannah told God this, if you bless me, look what she says, if you bless me with this child, I will not just bring him to the temple, but I'll give him to the temple to be of your service. My goodness. I won't just bring him to church. I'll give him to the church. And God hears her heart. And after he's born, she raises him, and once he's finally weaned, she fulfills her promise to God. A woman brings him and drops him off at the temple. Everyone might be like, this is crazy. You're going to drop him off to Eli and those boys? In one sense, that is crazy. But more than her giving her son to Eli and the boys, she was giving her son to God and giving him to serve in the temple. And this was all that God was looking for people who would genuinely come to the temple to give themselves to God. It wasn't about going to church. It was about giving yourself to the God of the temple. And so God says, he, he, he sends a word that he's going to reject Eli and his sons. And what happens simultaneously is that as God is rejecting Eli's sons, he's receiving the child. And what's going to happen is God's going to make a transition of authority right there in the temple. It says that the Philistines come to attack, and so they, the, the Israelites go to war, and they're like, oh, you know, I know how, we know how we can crush these dudes. Let's just go get the ark. We bring out the ark and shove, shove it in their face, and the God of our fathers is going to show up and crush these dudes. And so Eli, guess who he asked to carry the ark? The two sons come out with the temple, with the, with the ark. Get out of here. Get out of here. 
these boys who were stealing from the temple, these boys who were stealing the purity of women are the ones that go carrying the ark so they could go show their trophy to their enemy and beat them up? You think God is there? What do you think God allows to happen? He allows their enemies to defeat them, kill the sons, and the ark to be stolen by the Philistines. Someone comes, message gets back to Eli. Eli, you read, Eli's sitting on his chair. This is how lazy this man was. He just, you mean to tell me your boys are at war, the ark of the Lord has left the tabernacle, you're not in intercession, you're not fasting, you're not calling on God, you're just sitting down. He gets news that his two sons just died, and then they say, oh, and by the way, the ark was stolen. He falls off his chair and breaks his neck. And what's happening with Samuel? Samuel's in the temple. God had already called him. God starts speaking to him. And the Bible says that none of Samuel's words fell to the ground that he spoke for God. And that he was starting to grow in favor and grace with God to the point that then the people start to recognize that he's a prophet of the Lord. And eventually with Eli, sons, and himself passing, God starts to raise up Samuel as a prophet and priest before the nation. And you know what he does? He calls the people into repentance. How is he able to do this? Because he is someone who was given to the temple. And because his heart was right, because he was pursuing the temple, that he was able to truly lead the people. But when our hearts are not right, it does not matter if we have a title of authority in the church, we won't lead anyone anywhere. And that's who Eli and his sons were. Leaders were positioned but couldn't take the people anywhere. And so during Samuel's reign as priests and prophets, the glory starts to fill the tabernacle again. And the fear of God comes among the people. But just like every one of these men, what happens to them? They get old, and you know they're going to die. And so what do we read? We read then that um, as Samuel got older, we read this in 1 Samuel chapter 8, verses 4 to 7, that as Samuel gets older, his sons, his very own sons too, they don't fear the Lord. And so then all the people are like, yo, Samuel, your, your boys, they don't serve God like you do. And we read here, it says, so all the elders, this is verse 4, of Israel gathered together and came to Samuel at Ramah. They said to him, you are old and your sons do not follow your ways. What do you think they should have said next? I think what they should have said was, your sons don't follow your ways. We need to follow your ways. We need somebody in this temple. We, you know, like... If your boys are not here, we, 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 need to, we need to get back to that temple. Like, But they don't say that. They don't put the priority on we need this temple still, even though your boys are corrupt. They said to him, you are old, your sons do not follow your ways. Now appoint a king to lead us. Look, such as all the other nations have. And so what do they think they need is a solution. They think they need a king like the other nations. So they're looking at the example of other nations 
And they're like, we need a king over us. Since when did they ever have a human king over them in the first place? Moses was not their king. You know who Moses was? Moses was one who erected the temple. Joshua wasn't a king. He was someone who established the temple. What they need is someone that cared for the temple, not a king. The only king that they needed was the king of the temple. That's the king that they needed. Verse 6 says, but they said, give us a king to lead us. This displeased Samuel. So he prayed to the Lord, and the Lord told him, listen to all that the people are saying. It says, listen to all that the people are saying to you. It is not you they have rejected, but they have rejected me as their king. The king that they really needed was the king that always dwelt in the temple. And rather than their heart saying, all right, Samuel, you're getting old and your boys don't want this. We, we got to draw near to the temple. They say, we need you to give us a king. Today, I want to tell you, church, till this day, we don't, you don't need a human king. Don't ever think your past is a king that I'm sitting here like, and this is my throne. <laughs> please, please don't think Pastor Tanya is the queen. She's my queen, but she's not like, you know what I'm saying? Like, <laughs> it's not about us humans being your kings and queens. More than the king and the queen, you know what you need? You need this temple. Remember, it didn't matter if it was Moses. It didn't matter that it was Joshua. What matters is if the temple was cared for and God's house was taken care of, then his presence remained with the people and it filled their lives. And so this is what you this is what we need. This is what we need. We 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 need the temple, not because we need kings, but because we need God's presence. And I love when we get into the New Testament. The rest of their story, you don't have to read it. I'm not telling you that today. You re, you read your old testament. Um but by the time we get to Jesus, when Jesus is born, the, the temple is in bad shape again. And so through the Gospels, what you see Jesus doing is he's confronting the leadership. The leadership that what? That is serving in and out of the temple. You see him deal with scribes. You see him, you know, combat with Pharisees and Sadducees. And you actually see in the Gospel of John, in the beginning, he, he goes into the temple and he goes ballistic because he sees that the same thing that was happening during the time of Eli and his boys where they were cheating people at the temple is happening. And in John chapter 2, he says, he starts whipping people. Like, he can, can you imagine this? He starts flipping tables. He says, you're not going to make, look, my father's house a den of thieves. And, 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 and the leaders there, they're like, who gives you this authority? Who gives you this authority to come in here and flip the system on us? Clearly, it's probably been for years that they were doing things corrupt there. And I don't like this Jesus guy coming from Nazareth. 
And you know what's so amazing? Jesus doesn't say, because I'm king. He doesn't say that. Verse 18 says, The Jews then responded to him, What sign can you show us to prove your authority to do all of this? They're like, prove your authority for you to come in here and flip our tables. And Jesus doesn't start talking about, well, I'm the king here. You know what Jesus says? Jesus answered to them, he said, destroy this temple, and I will raise it up again in three days. And they replied, it has taken 46 years to build this temple, and you're going to raise it in three days? But the temple he has spoken of was his body. And after he was raised from the dead, his disciples recalled what he had said. Then they believed the scripture and the words that Jesus had spoken. What I find so beautiful is that when Jesus could have just said, I'm king, <laughs> he doesn't. He says, I'm temple. He says, I'm temple. And his whole life journey is about him inviting men and the crowds to come, not even to a king, but to come to the temple. That's profound, because we did a whole series, King Jesus. And we know he's king, but he wants to invite us into the temple of who he is, so that we can, what, experience the presence of the Father. And while Jesus could have been like, I'm king, King Jesus is coming on my horse, right? Even Jesus was always pointing the people towards the Father. And so what Jesus is then saying, as the tabernacle was for Moses and for Joshua and for Samuel, as the tabernacle was the place that people went to in order for them to experience the presence of God, what Jesus is saying, I am the place where you come to experience the presence of the Father. So what Jesus is also saying, it doesn't end with me. I want to bring you to the Father. We could probably talk about that for days, but Jesus doesn't say, I'm the be-all, end-all, king-all, and though he is. He says, I am the temple. You come to me. This is where you experience the presence of the Father. And it's there where we are transformed. So don't let anyone tell you you don't need a temple. If they do, tell them to open up their Bibles to Numbers chapter 9, and you show them. <laughs> and you go through the whole Old Testament with them. So church, we need the temple. And the beautiful thing is that we learn then that while we have this physical temple, the real temple is Christ Jesus. And so if if we lose Jesus in this place, if we stop speaking about Jesus, if, if Jesus is not king of here, if this becomes about what we want, how we like it, you know, the next coolest church on the block, and we lose Jesus in this place, then we become like the temple during the time of Jesus that had its structure but had no presence of God. We become just like Eli and his sons who have positions here and yet are unable to bring people to God. So we need this place, but we need to understand that Jesus is our temple. Amen?
I'm going to end with this passage of scripture. Later on, David, who's the man who God chooses to lead the people, in Psalms 27, he said this, One thing I have desired of the Lord, that will I seek, that I may dwell in the house of the Lord all the days of my life, to behold the beauty of the Lord and to inquire in his temple. For in the time of trouble, he shall hide me in his pavilion. In the secret place of his tabernacle, he shall hide me. He shall set me high upon a rock. And so I just want going to pray now with you. Father, we thank you, Lord. We thank you for being here, for, for, for still choosing to dwell with your creation, Lord. Father, thank you for this building. Thank you for the gift of giving it to us. I thank you, Lord God, for the people that gave their offerings and their time and their resource in order to build this place, Lord. So we're grateful for it. We're grateful that we have walls. We're grateful that we do have chairs. We thank you that we have a place for our children. We thank you that we have a, a, a room for us to fellowship and congregate, Lord. But more than anything, Lord God, we just we thank you for you, Lord. We thank you for the grace that brings us here, Lord. David prayed that the one thing he desired was to be in your house, Lord. So I pray that that becomes, Lord, the posture of our heart, that our desire and our will is to be here, Lord, and not just to see people and to have something to do, Lord, but to experience you, to hear of your wisdom, to worship you, and to be transformed by you. Father, today, Lord, I pray for anyone that is afar off, that they know because of you they can also draw near, that you are a righteousness, Lord. And Father, through your death on the cross, you made the ultimate and final sacrifice that needs to be done, Lord. So Father, you became, Lord God, the sacrifice in that temple, Lord, for us, so that we could be washed and cleansed, so that we can come near unto you. So Father, I pray for any heart here that is far away, that feels impure, that feels sinful, that feels evil, Lord God. Today, may they know that they can be transformed as they draw near to you. Father, I pray that you would save us today by the confession of our faith, that we would put our faith in you, Jesus, that we would acknowledge your blood shed for us, and that we would acknowledge, Lord, that on the third day, you got your body up, you raised the temple on the third day as you said you would. And as you raised, Lord God, the temple, Lord, and Father, you filled with power and glory, Lord God, like never before. Your word tells us, too, that in you we're new creations and that you give us a portion of your spirit, Lord. So today, Father, I pray by your Holy Spirit, not only that you just wash us, but that you fill us, Lord God, with your presence, Lord. Help us to know and begin to learn that we, too, are temples of the Holy Spirit, Lord. Father, I just thank you for all that you're doing in our lives as a church, as a community. Father, I thank you for the fellowship that, that we have, Lord. Continue to transform us so that we can be a light and a blessing to the rest of the world. We pray all these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. God bless you guys. And know that this temple is needed. And so push yourself to be here. 
um, encourage those that maybe you don't see coming. Um, invite them to draw near. Amen? All right, love you guys. God bless you. Thank you so much.